Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. So we've seen, obviously, an enormous compression of cap rates. And so if your audience is listening to this, they say, what does that mean, Sam? That means that your revenue to purchase price keeps getting smaller. That spread. So we say if you're buying on a five cap, then you need to spend a million dollars and you get $50,000 a year in net operating income. That's buying on. That's a 5% of the purchase price. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Josh McCown from Capital Hacking, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field with Jim Pfeiffer. This is the most important thing you can listen to today. I'm really excited today to have Sam Wilson with us. He is the founder of Bricken Investment Group, a syndicator specializing in Class B and C multifamily apartments, primarily in the Southeast. He is also host of the How to Scale Commercial Real Estate podcast. So, Sam, welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me. The first thing we do here generally is just kind of want to get a sense of who you are and, and your journey to passive investing, to syndication, kind of your financial journey. If you could give us a couple minutes and, and tell us where you started and how you got to where you are. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, we'll keep this strictly on the passive conversation side today. And even just to clarify on the apartment complex things, I'll give a little color on that as well. First of all, BNC Apartments, yes, done a lot of that, done boat and RV storage. And this year, really actually focusing in on RV parks and RV and boat storage. It's kind of something we're kind of taking a left turn out of multifamily apartments on the active side. But on the passive side, how did I get involved was just had some money on the sidelines and started going to conferences. That's really how I got involved and how I started deploying money into passive investments. I mean, that's the short of it. I was already in real estate, had done a bunch of stuff on the active side, on the single family space, doing flicks and flips, rentals, long-term holds, stuff like that. And then I think a lot more opportunities to passively invest in commercial real estate. And so that's kind of how I took that leap. You know, you said you started by going to conferences. How did you even know to go to these conferences? How did you find passive investing? I know it's sometimes it's a natural journey from being an active investor, but what was the thing that made you think, okay, 
I want to switch and not do the active small stuff that you were doing, the flips. I assume they're mostly singles or doubles. And how did you get to, hey, there's this passive thing and that's what I want to do? Yeah, that's a great question. I was never looking for it. Actually, now that I think about it at the time, I didn't know anything about it. And so, yeah, I'd been in real estate for five years and had never really heard of this idea of passive investing, which is pretty hysterical if you really think about it. So how did I pick the conference? I don't remember. I don't remember how I picked the conference, but it was a conference and I said, hey, we're going to go to that. It sounds like there's some big names going to it. And that is really where I started forming friendships and figuring out what people were doing, what asset classes were even available to passively invest in. And that's how I just started building those relationships with those sponsors. It took me a year, I think, before I ever invested passively with any of those operators. But the key was just having breakfast and lunch and talking about their deals and hearing where they're going and getting market sentiments and hearing about the asset classes they're investing in. There was stuff that was intriguing to me, stuff that was not. Office buildings were never very intriguing to me. It was like, eh, it's kind of boring. But the idea of self-storage portfolio across the United States, well, that's fun. I like that idea. And it just kind of fit my personality as much as it did you know, my investment thesis. So that's really how I started. You know, you talked about forming relationships. And I think that's really key in this industry. And people are always so helpful, which is a nice thing. So these relationships, then you had to vet these sponsors, right? And you said it took a year before you invested. So are you still passive investing? And if so, how did you vet sponsors at the beginning? And how do you vet them now if there's a difference? Oh, gosh, yes, there's a difference, a huge difference. One, I did a very poor job in the beginning. I was a newbie. I didn't understand what I was getting into because this is a game where you're betting on the jockey, not the horse. And what I mean by that is the team is the most important part of the whole equation. So there's three things I would say in order of importance when you're vetting passive investing. First is the deal sponsor. Know the team. That's the very first thing you want to spend 80% of your time getting to know the team. The second, maybe the remaining 5% more of that, take us up to 85% would be vetting the market they're in. So you want to know what market they're in. You're going to spend a little bit of time getting to know the market. But once the metrics make sense, that's not a terribly hard part of the task. And maybe the remaining 15%, I would say you spend actually vetting the deal itself that that team is presenting. And so I did none of those things well in the beginning. I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know what to ask. I just know that I'd met some guys. We spent a lot of time talking. I listened to them and I said, these guys are a heck of a lot smarter than me and they are doing cool things and I want to be part of it. And so I bet luckily, again, foolishly, but luckily on the right jockey. And so how that has changed to today is that one, I do those things that I said in the beginning is that I want to know, like, and trust the sponsorship team. There's probably a hundred questions if anybody wants a copy of it that I, that I have that I could potentially ask a deal sponsor. Everything from background checks to, you know, if I did a background check, is there anything funny I'd find in your background? I mean, maybe there is, and maybe somebody has a, an, an honest explanation for why that is, or maybe they don't. Then that's just one sampling of some of the things I would want to know. I'd want to know how many deals they've exited. And they haven't necessarily had to have exited a deal, but maybe even also inside of that is, hey, are you hitting the projections? Show me the projections that you had out in your offering memorandum before the deal went live, and then show me what they're doing now. Like Those are things I want to know. If you're consistently hitting your projections, well, then by all means, that means you're doing something right. And if you're not, well, either A, you made a a mistake, which is going to happen in this business. I mean, nobody's perfect. Nobody's going to always hit their projections. But again, reasons, this is what we missed. Here's why we missed it. Maybe there was something catastrophic that happened that was outside of everyone's control. There's a million things that can go 
right? And a million things can go wrong in this business. So those are some of the things I look at now when I'm talking to a new sponsor. I'm sitting on some capital, even as we're recording this, where I'm going, I haven't deployed it yet because I haven't found where, as, and also as, as the market shifts, I am, again, strategically moving both passive and active investments out of the multifamily space just because I see it being very frothy. I could be completely wrong. There's lots of people that argue there's huge tailwinds there. But for me right now, maybe I want to diversify out of that a little bit into some other things. So I don't know. That's probably a 20-minute answer to a one-minute question, but that's what I've got for now. No, that's great. You said you put 80% of your evaluation on the sponsor. So I got a couple questions related to that. One, I agree with it, but why? Why so much time do you spend on the sponsor? And then kind of part two of that question is, how do you find sponsors now? What's the process? Mm-hmm. Again, it, it's the same for me still. Well, two ways for me personally. One is I run a daily real estate podcast. So I get a personal front seat to interviewing people like yourself all the time. Like, okay, who's coming on the show? Who's putting out? And I get kind of that personal vibe even from them out of the out of the gate where it says, hey, do I want to invest with you further? You can do the same thing. And, you know, If you're listening to this show, you can go out and listen to as many podcast episodes as you want. And I would recommend it because then you're going to go, oh, hey, I like what this person said. I like what they were thinking. I like their investment thesis. Or maybe you don't like it. Maybe you're like, you know, that person just doing stuff, but I don't, I don't want to put my money in on that. Uh, I wanted to know why the 80% on the sponsor? Yeah, absolutely. Well, because a good sponsor can take a bad deal and turn it into an okay deal. If something goes wrong, they're going to have the tools, the resources, the industry knowledge, the contacts to go out and say, how do we write this deal? And they're going to have the fortitude to stick it out and the experience to know how. You take that conversely. And so if something's going wrong, you need the right person operating the deal. If conversely, you can, and we always say, so you can take a, a sponsorship team with a, with a C deal and it'll work out okay. Or you can take a C sponsorship team with an A deal and they'll run it into the ground. Because if they don't have the experience to run and operate even something that's going well, they can overlook all the basic things that need to be done. Everything from investor communications to operational efficiencies, expense cutting, whatever it is, suddenly they can just turn it into a big bloated project and run that right into the ground. So that's why I spend the most time on the sponsor themselves, because I want to know that when things go wrong, they're going to have the tools and resources to handle it and make it work. And when you look at a multifamily deal or similar, are you also vetting the property manager and making sure that they're a fit? Or do you let the sponsor figure that out and you're just fine with whatever property manager they select? Yeah. And shoot, man, property management, that's another one. They are second second part of that kind of 80% equation is that if it's a multifamily property, yeah, you got to know the property manager. We just had to let a property management company go on a deal that I'm an active general partner in. And I can tell you that even though we vetted the property manager properly, they run 20,000 some odd units. You know, they're not small, but we got them into a low income housing tax credit property. And this was their first. And we didn't take that into account. So here, I'm telling you all the mistakes I make. You're going to make mistakes in real estate. And just for those of you who are listening, low income housing tax credit is LIHTC. The industry calls it LIHTC. They were not running the LIHTC project the way it needs to be run. They weren't getting the, the state forms in on time. They weren't getting the, the reimbursements done on time. The, the unit turns were slow. And it was just like, man, that was crushing us. So yes, we made a mistake in bringing on a property management company that was not LIHTC well-versed. We've since removed them and put in a new property management company, and it's a night and day difference. So yes, 100% evaluate the property manager, make sure they're a good fit 
for the property type that's being run. Similarly, if I have a LIHTC, somebody that's in the low-income housing space for a property management company, I don't want them running a Class A asset. They're not used to making sure that the grills are clean, that the pool decks are well scrubbed, that the pool is you know sparkling clear with all the right. I mean, it's just that they don't even they're not even used to having pools in their properties. So you know, those are things that you know, landscaping is not up to date. Well, maybe in the past it hasn't mattered that much because it's a low income housing property and no one really cares if it's got fresh mulch every three months. The question then becomes: If I'm a passive investor, as most of our audience is, how do we ask the right question to the sponsor? to be able to understand if they're using the right property manager. And a side question is, if I was a passive investor in the deal you're talking about, what question could I have asked that would have pointed me to, maybe you didn't select the right property manager for this deal? Yeah, that's a great question. And certainly we spent a lot of time talking about the property management team and their expertise, but we just overlooked the fact that they were not well-versed in LIHTC. And we also and this was our first LIHTC property as well. So again, I'm telling you problems we've or mistakes that, that we have made. Luckily, in the end, it didn't. You know, we, this only went on for three months, and we just said, "Hey, wait, no, we're out. We're switching gears fast." And we have. And to know, we still made our distributions on time. We still still hit our returns to our investors. It's still there. It just was not optimized. So, how to do that? It's a great question. I'm not sure how to answer exactly, but just making sure that your sponsor. Again, I'd go back to asking them: Is your property management company? well-versed in the type of asset that you guys are buying. Because I don't care if you guys have worked together for years and you know each other, but if it's the wrong asset and they've never managed it, it's probably not a good fit. Yeah, I think that's great. And I, I really like it when I'm talking to a sponsor who's made a mistake, is willing to admit it and then talk about the solution, right? Because if you're not, then that's a bigger problem, right? And so when you're evaluating the sponsor, part of it is if they make a mistake in selecting the property manager, are they going to be able to pivot quick enough and in three months, get out of that property manager and pick the right one. So I think that mistake, it's one of those things where you made a mistake and you just turned it into a strength, right? For sure. We're proud to say that we've never missed our distributions, that everything went on, is going as planned. But yeah, be, having the right team where we said, hey, no, we're out. We're cutting bait. We're moving on. It's going to be painful. Let's go. We're going to find the right property management team. And, and it's been in 45 days, just again, night and day difference. And I always say that in any business or in life in general, it's not... If you're going to make mistakes, it's what you do when you make them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the only way you learn is by making mistakes. I don't learn a whole lot from my successes. I'm glad to have them, but I learn a lot more from my failures. Let me ask you this. You said you're less into multifamily now. Is that because there's additional risks now for the value add sector of multifamily? Or what are the risks to value add if there are any? Yeah. So we've seen obviously an enormous compression of cap rates. And so if your audience is listening to this and they say, what does that mean, Sam? That means that your revenue to purchase price keeps getting smaller. That spread. So we say if you're buying on a five cap, then you need to spend a million dollars and you get $50,000 a year in net operating income. That's buying on, that's a 5% of the purchase price. Easiest way I know to explain it, and maybe you can explain it clearer but that keeps getting smaller. So we've seen it go from 70,000, 50,000, now we're four and a half caps. We're even seeing stuff trade now in the threes, which is just mind boggling to think that you'd pay a million bucks to have 30 to $40,000 in net operating income, mind boggling. And so one, I see risk on that front. I mean, there certainly seems to be no waning demand for multifamily housing. So with that, we've also seen just an exterior, just an absurd run I'm going to say in rent prices. So rents just are up and to the right. 
in a direction that we've just never seen before. Now, is that bad or good? I don't know, but I wonder if it's sustainable. And again, there's opportunities out there. The third thing is there are opportunities out there. However, finding those opportunities becomes more and more difficult with each and every day. So again, not that there's not opportunity. So I don't want to say that because anybody that says there's no opportunity just isn't looking hard enough. But I also find that there's no reason to duke it out with 20 other people bidding on the same project when there are easier and greener pastures elsewhere, I think with better fundamentals attached to them and maybe not so much this just frothy go by multifamily craze I feel like we're in. Yeah. And I got to say, I do not like cap rate because it's so confusing. It works in inverse. It goes opposite the direction you think it is. But that explanation where you get $50,000 of income for a million dollars of capital outlay, that's the best explanation of cap rates I've heard. So I love that. That's really good. But what I want to talk about then is, I get it, the multifamily is competitive. There's a lot of reasons why maybe go a different direction. So talk about what are other asset classes that you would consider? And then after you tell me a few asset classes, I want to dive into RV parks and boat storage. But are there other asset classes you're looking at as well? For me personally, when on the active side, no. Well, we can get into that, I guess. But the first part of your question is what else would I invest in? I mean, certainly self-storage is kind of feeling the same pains that multifamily and even mobile home parks, which is another wild thing. I I love the idea of mobile home parks. It's one of the last remaining affordable housing solutions we have. Love those, but we've seen, again, those cap rates compress even more and more. And just for those of you listening, obviously, the lower the cap rates go, that means the more you have to pay for that level of return. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for Tribe Vest. Now, you might be thinking, why would Tribe Vest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at Tribe Vest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. Tribe Vest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. you get less income for your million dollars. So instead of 50 grand for your million, you're getting 40 grand for your million or 30 grand for a million. That's what compressing cap rates is. I'm not going to stop talking about that example because it's a really good one. It's a really great way to explain it. Thanks. So I've seen mobile home parks that keeps going down. Multifamily keeps going down. And so I want to look for places. And of course, even if you're a single family investor, even if you're investing in a single family fund or even build the rent, I'm just seeing those costs of construction just skyrocket and or the cost of purchase if you're a single family investor. I bought something, oh gosh, two years ago and then I just sold it for one and a half times what I paid for it. And I'm like, I don't even know how this, how the, the buyer, and this was a single family, kind of some legacy, single, maybe it was three years ago, but how this is penciling out for the buyer. I don't know because they're holding it for an investment property. I did the math. I'm like, there's not even $100 a month maybe here that you're getting out of this by the time you pay all this stuff down. So 
that said, those are some of the places that I see opportunity in, you know, self-storage still has opportunity. Those cap rates are not as compressed maybe as everything else is, though it's heading there. The institutional money that's flowing into that space is crazy. Yeah. And that's what brings me to boat and RV storage and into RV parks and why those cap rates have not compressed. So again, going back to the million dollar analogy, you spend a million bucks on an average right now, you're going to get about $87,500 a year annually net operating income for that million dollar outlay. That's strong. That's 8.75%. So I can outlay the same amount of capital and get maybe twice the return what I could in a mobile home park or in an apartment community. And we can get into all the reasons why I feel like there's lots of runway in that asset class if you'd like. Just understand what is the asset class. I think RV parks, I'm thinking of those campgrounds and then the boat storage and RV storage, that's kind of similar to self-storage. But I know during the pandemic, there was a huge run-up in people buying motorhomes. So a couple of things, I'd like to hear just your overview of it. But I would think that, you know, is that sustainable, the cap rates, because so many people bought, but now if the pandemic, if we ever get through this and it starts dying down, are people still going to be using their motorhomes? So Talk about the asset class as a whole. It's really interesting to me, especially after you said 8.75, then my ears really perked up. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a crazy stat. It's like, wait, and that's not every park, but that's kind of an average nationally. First off, the RV park asset class. Yes, it can be considered campground-ish, but it's not necessarily where you're popping up your tents and it's not really in the campground sense of that. It's generally vacation travelers and or long-term RV parks. Believe it or not, there's quite a slew of long-term RV parks around the country. It's kind of the poor man's second vacation home. Where they go, they park their, they park their RV. They may never even move it. They pay a 12-month rent on the property. So you're getting rent 12 months just like you would lot rent on a mobile home park. But they're only there four to six months of the year at most. And lastly, you get a better tenant because they're not there all the time. And because it is kind of their second vacation or their vacation home, if you will, they take better care of the property. They're a better class of tenant. They pay more for it and they're not there very often. And it's like, oh, wait, this makes a heck of a lot of sense. So it's easier to maintain and run maybe than say a mobile home park. And so that's a long-term RV park. But a lot of these even longer-term RV parks also have a short-term component to them as well. Whereas you'll have somebody traveling across the country, a family. I mean, I'm an RV owner as well. And I've stayed at plenty of RV parks where you're just riding across the country and you're like, oh, hey, we need a place to stay tonight. Where are we going to stay Google Maps, RV park. Oh, I found an RV park. You book a slot, you pay 50 bucks for the night, plug in, and then you move on the next day. So that's kind of the RV park as a whole. Why is that compelling is because we had a 33% increase in RV deliveries in 2020 over 2019. We had a 43.5% increase 2021 over 2020. So 2020's deliveries were like 350,000 new RVs. In 2021, we had 600,000 new RVs delivered. We're on track for the same amount of deliveries in 2022. That's 1.2 million new RVs in the United States in a 24 calendar month window. Where are those going to go? Where are they going to go? And to answer your question, is it sustainable? So I think yes, because we've seen a shift, a fundamental shift in the way that the middle class family can travel and have a good time as a family and get out without dealing with hotels, airplanes, things like that. And lastly, so I think we've seen a shift on that front because the demographics have shifted. It used to be that it was 60 plus, you know, your grandparents out in their RV tour in the country because that's what they want to do in their dream retirement and go to all the national parks and have a good time. The largest RV group ownership now is 35 to 55. I fall right in that window of the largest group of people that own RVs. And that's people with families. I got three small kids. Yes, I'm traveling with an RV. 
another question you had for me, Jim, was, is this a sustainable run? Like, where does this end? You know, do we have a major correction? And then all of a sudden we go, uh oh, like nobody's buying RVs. Nobody's doing anything with them. Where does it go? I don't know where this takes us 10 years out. I do think, again, that we've seen the demographic ownership shift. And I think it's going to be something that people are going to continue to use for a long time. The Smoky Mountains is an area that we're looking at heavily. It was the most visited national park in the United States last year. Great place for RV park ownership. I mean, families are going there. It's inexpensive, really, overall. Once you get there, there are some headwinds to the RV park and the really RV ownership as a whole that are just are some risks involved with it, you know, in the sense that what happens to fuel prices? Fuel prices go to six bucks a gallon. People aren't driving their RVs across the country that get sometimes gallons of the mile, it feels like, in uh, fuel inefficiency. That's a headwind to it. And those are some things you got to think about. But I do think in the short run, five to 10 years, we're going to have a nice asset class to hold on to and run. Because also, the American family is not getting richer. We're not getting richer every day. The disposable incomes are not going up. And I think people are going to continue to look for more economical ways to take the family out, have a good time without it completely breaking the bank. And outside of actually owning the RV, it's just not that expensive to travel in one for, say, a seven-day stay. Whereas you go stay in a seven-day stay at a short-term rental in the Smoky Mountains, and that's several thousand dollars at least. There's some good tailwinds there for the industry as well. Yeah. And a couple of questions then. One is, what is the average like park size? What are you looking at there? Because you know, we went on a motorhome trip during the pandemic and and we stayed at this one place that's exactly what you're talking about. I think it had maybe 20 spots for a couple night campers, you know, where you come in and go and reserve. And then it had maybe 50 or 100 spots for the long-term people. They even had where you'd park your motorhome and you build a deck. And, you know, I mean, they had permanent structures built around it. So can you talk about the park size that you're going after? And you do you have to buy more than one park or is one a good enough investment to make some money at? And then the second question is, are they building new parks? They are building new parks. That is interesting in the sense that unlike mobile home parks, which are really hard to get permitted unless you're out in no man's land, rural county, which I don't want to own an RV park. I don't want to own an RV park out in rural middle of nowhere, and nor do I want to own a mobile home park in the middle of nowhere. But aside from that, yes, they are permitting new RV parks because a lot of these go in as really high-class facilities. There's RVs that trade a million bucks plus for a really nice 40-foot Class A diesel pusher RV. It's like, oh my gosh, you can spend an enormous amount of money. So there's some really high-class RV parks. And so they are getting permitted. I looked at at an opportunity yesterday down in the Carolinas, and it's like, it's a brand new development, not something I'm jumping into yet. It was really just more for entertainment. I was looking at it like, oh, that's curious. How's that working out? So they are permitting those. For us right now, on the stuff we're looking to acquire, it's going to be in the 5 to $10 million range. You can certainly get outside of that. You get into Mountain West, you get into somewhere that's a, a really nice RV park, a Class A RV park. Man, those things are going to trade 20, 30 million bucks at a time for the right size of park. That's really the size of the park is not going to be necessarily based on the number of spaces that are in it, or the price of the park is not going to be based on the number of spaces that are in it. So it kind of changes just depend on what you're buying and where, depends on how many spaces you're going to get out of it. But for us right now, there's ample opportunity in that five to $10 million range. And the ones you're looking at, do they have? permanent structures? Is there a pool? Are there bathrooms? Like, How much of this is camping and how much of this is parking your motorhome in a in what is really a small community of other people parking their motorhomes and you're not necessarily building a fire outside, but you might be going to the community pool? Are there differences there? Yes. And the ones that I'm really interested in are going to be the ones that are more 
that going to the community pool, building a, you know, where people come and they want to stay. And it's like, oh, wait, we leave our RVs here. We're here for the whole summer. I want the destination RV park where people go to the same park more than I want the, you know, hey, just passing down Interstate 70 through Columbus and like, oh, hey, we're going to stop right before we get to, I'm, you know, that's, I want the destination RV park. That's kind of where I see more opportunity because people want to go there. You're going to get a premium for those locations. It's also, again, it goes back to what interests me more than even necessarily like, hey, this is always the best business is in, but I think it's both in this case. So I'm a passive investor, as you know. Let's say you you have a motor home or park, or whatever they call them, RV park, right? And you present it to me. What am I looking at? I have no idea how to evaluate that. If you're a passive investor, what questions am I asking? Assume I've already vetted you as the sponsor, but as far as the deal, how do I know if I'm looking at a deal that's going to make me money or not? Yeah, you're going to look at operations first off. Like, how is it being operated? The other cool thing about this industry, much like the mobile home park space, is that there is institutional capital. I mean, certainly in any asset class, there's institutional capital, but it's still largely mom and pop owned. What I mean by that, it's a, it's a fragmented industry, which is why your cap rates are also higher because as a fragmented industry, mom and pop just don't typically optimize their portfolios the way that a institutional buyer would. So the questions I would have would be operations. These are more operationally complex because you do have that mix of long-term tenants. Then you also have that like creating a community component. And then you also have that short-term person like you and me riding in for the weekend and we're going to be here for two days. Well, then complications with that become how are they booking? How are they getting put, put it settled in their space? When they show up, do you need somebody out there that actually shows them like, hey, you know, you're in B13, not C13, even though their app says whatever it is. You can easily have somebody wandering in a campground at 10 o'clock or an RV park at 10 o'clock at night, shining their headlights and everybody's rigged because they're looking for their space. Like, that's annoying. You know, who's the newbie? Like, get him out of here. Well, operations is one of the reasons I think that also we have higher cap rates in it. If you're not prepared to operationally handle that or have operational experience, it's going to be a harder learning curve. And so that's something even for us that as we venture into this space, I am proactively aligning myself with other partners that have already operated, that have already owned RV parks. I said, and then I, I just had a call with some the other day. I said, look, I'm headlong into this space, but I need an operations partner that already has experience because I do not. I mean, I just don't. I've not owned an RV park yet, but I can bring capital to it and I understand the space. I just need people that know more about it than I do. So having an operations partner that understands the mechanics of it, because it's even more moving pieces than a mobile home park. So I think that's one of the things that you would probably want to understand is who's operating it. A lot of those groups where like retirees will come in. I'm sure you've seen the campground host. They'll come in and stay for the summer. That's one of your operations partners is, hey, who's your boots in the ground? How are they making sure things are being run? Do you have front office staff? What does the operations look like? So that would be one of the first things I would ask. Okay. That makes sense. Anything else that a passive investor should ask other than operations when they're, when they're evaluating a deal? Yeah. Why are people staying there? What's the mix of long-term to short-term? What is the rent? What is your value-add play? Because, I mean, you do have to have a value-add strategy in these parks. It could have been poorly managed. I mean, we're looking at one right now. It's just not optimized because it's, again, mom and pop owned. They bought it four or five years ago. They're kind of tired. They didn't really put the systems in place. So what's your plan? How are you going to increase the value of this? Why are people coming there? Going back from the 80 five and 15, you know, tell me about the market. I guess and maybe maybe that number changes slightly because in this business, the market is important. Like we're looking at a deal right now that 
I think it gets a million plus visitors a year just to this one reservoir, which is just a, a staggering number. So why are people coming there? Well, I want to I want to know those things. I want to know what the demand generator is. Does that drop off if we have a recession? Or does it just keep you know on a reservoir? Is it? I mean, people that like to fish and go stay in their RVs, and that probably doesn't go away regardless of what the economic situation is. People that like to fish like to fish. So getting to know those things, I think, is something else. And getting a firm understanding of who the clientele is that's staying there and why, I think, is another big part of that equation. Excellent. That's great. Give me a couple of minutes on the uh, RV storage and boat storage, because obviously that's different than the RV parks. But just talk to me about that. What's the opportunity there? I always think you just park it at a self-storage facility and you're done. So obviously there's something else going on. Yeah, absolutely. So you get a lot of these, I mean, the price of RVs is just going up, as is with anything, especially in anything that with wheels, it, the values are just, just skyrocketing, even for used stuff. Outside of that, in the new stuff, it just it means it's all that much more expensive. People are spending a lot of money on these vehicles. They need a place to park them and store them, generally prefer covered parking. Now, you can park them out in the middle of a, you know, a gravel lot if you want, but most people are going to want to put that into a 40-foot covered bay that's all their own, where they can pull it in, trickle, put it on a trickle charger if they want, if they have a boat, or you know, maybe even plug in and make sure their batteries stay charged for their RV. Whatever it is, people are going to want to cover those, especially when you get up in the multiple six-figure rigs. People don't want to just park that out in the middle of nowhere exposed to the elements. So maybe that works in places like Florida, but even then, I bet it's even more of a demand just because the, you know when you get in those retirement states like that, you wind up with people driving much nicer, much nicer rigs. So that said, the same demand generator that, that makes the RV park valuable means people also don't have a place to put them. What city allows you to park it on the street? What local neighborhood homeowners association lets you park it in your driveway? Very few. I mean, very few can you go take an RV and stick it in your driveway. You got to find a place to put it. I keep using this example. There was there's a brand new facility built an hour and a half outside of Memphis, halfway between Memphis and a lake, right? Or a reservoir. And it's a, it's a reservoir that a lot of people go to between Memphis and here or there. And it's an hour and a half outside of the city, middle of nowhere, North Mississippi, 250 units, covered RV parking. It was full in four months from the time they built it. I mean, full. They got a waiting list now. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is insane. And again, it goes back to the fact that we're having so many of these being delivered. People don't have a place to put them. Everywhere I've checked for RV storage is full. It's full. The other thing is they've gotten bigger. So your legacy storage doesn't work. So your class A used to be, or class C RV might might have been 20 foot or 22 feet a few years ago. Now class C's kind of bumped up to that. Oh, you can have a 28 foot class C RV. Oh, wait, that means your class, I mean, they just keep getting longer and bigger, which means you need more places to store them. So your legacy storage that's, oh, hey, a 30 foot storage unit no longer works for a lot of RVs, which is, again, you just need to have new supply coming online to handle that. That's great. This has been super interesting. The last question I always ask is, what's a favorite podcast that you listen to? And I'm going to put your podcast, How to Scale Commercial Real Estate, in the show notes. So that one you cannot say is your favorite. So give me one or two other podcasts that you like listening to. Jim, I'll be honest, out of 450 some odd episodes, I think I've listened to one of my own just to go back and make sure. I'm like, because the last thing you want to hear is yourself yourself on, on audio. One of my favorite podcasts, you know, I really enjoy Hunter Thompson's podcast. I'll be honest. And that's, that's a shameless plug for his, the uh, Cashflow Connections podcast. He brings on a lot of really intriguing guests that have sometimes dissenting views one guest to the next. I think he does a great job of pulling out their information and not necessarily arguing over the points are being made, but just 
letting the information ride and then letting you as the listener go, huh, does that make sense? Or is this guest completely off the rocker? Which I think he's had a few of those and they're kind of fun to listen to. That's great. Yeah, I, I like that podcast as well. That, that's a good one. So if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? Man, call me 901-500-6191. That's my cell phone. That's the best and fastest or text me. That's the best and fastest way to get a hold of me. I do have some free investor resources there on our website. If you're a passive investor, I've put together a guide. It's called How to Vet a Deal in 10 Minutes. I know when I first started out, I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to vet deals that I had no business participating in. And so I've put a guide together that will kind of help you set up your large criteria as a filter and go, okay, this deal passes, passes, passes. Great. I should investigate further. Or in 10 minutes, you'll figure out if you should be in or out. So that'll really help you. It's gets Go to Bricken, B-R-I-C-K-E-N, investmentgroup.com. Again, Bricken, investmentgroup.com forward slash checklist. And you can download that checklist for free. Awesome. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. That sounds fantastic. So listen, Sam, really appreciate you being on the podcast. And people won't notice, but there's a little break in the middle where uh, the power went out and Sam just went and filled up his generator and came right back to the podcast. So I really appreciate the, uh, you went above and beyond to continue. And I appreciate that. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate you having me on. All right, take care. This episode is brought to you by MAG Capital Partners, a leading investment firm specializing in single-tenant industrial real estate with triple net leases. MAG invests in properties with established tenants in manufacturing, cold storage, and distribution. These income investments are designed for strong, tax-advantaged cash flow from day one and have historically generated above-market returns. With approximately $500 million of real estate acquisitions, MAG Capital Partners has extensive experience and a history of profitable exits. To learn more about MAG Capital Partners, visit www.magcp.com. That was a fun conversation with Sam, and it was interesting because in the middle of it, he cut out because the power went out, but I didn't realize that he's been without power for eight days and he was had a generator, and that's how he was powering his house and doing the podcast. And the generator ran out of gas, and I waited five minutes, and he hopped right back on. So that was kind of interesting. I appreciated him keeping going and, and doing it, even though he didn't have any power. Some of the things that really struck me is, you know, he started out kind of like me, where he was doing a poor job of vetting sponsors at the start, didn't know what he was doing, and learned from experience. And that's what we all do. But if we can also, as I always talk about, use community to shortcut some of those mistakes so we don't all have to make them. And then how he looks at you know a deal or what's the most important part, 80% sponsor, he said 5% market and 15% deal. And you know I don't know that I've broken it down to specific percentages, but I don't disagree with any of that. Sponsor, 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 that's the most critical thing. Really interesting what he talked about with the property manager, making sure it matches the asset, right? So if you have a property manager who's always done class A, and then you buy something class C and you, and you hire that property manager, they're not going to know how to work with that type of clientele. And it goes the other way too. If, if they're used to class C, they're not going to be wanting to do or be as effective at class A. And that brings it to, he made a mistake on one of his deals. And I just love that he admitted it, owned it. He knew he was talking to you know, a podcast of new people probably haven't heard of him. And he said, hey, I made a mistake. But the best part is he fixed it. In three months, they realized, oops, this wasn't the right property manager. So they changed property managers, found one that would fit, and they didn't miss a beat. A lot of asset managers, syndicators, I think, would go longer than three months. They would try to make sure, pigeonhole that uh, property manager and, and make them fit in, a, in, in something that they're not good at. 
But I love the way that the, he said, you know what? Wrong property manager. Let's move on and cut our losses. And it ended up there weren't any losses. And finally, the cap rate conversation. I always get confused by cap rates. They don't make sense to me a lot of times. I know that they're compressing and that's bad. And you want to sell low and buy high. And that doesn't make sense to me all the time. But what he said was the cap rate, you know, at 5% cap rate, you are getting $50,000 of income for a million dollars of investment. And just saying it that way, I love it. That is an easy way to think of it. So if the cap rates are going down and it's now 3%, you're only getting $30,000 for a million dollar investment. So that makes sense to me. Love that analogy. I'm always interested in new asset classes and RV parks and RV and boat storage. Those are new to me. And I will be keeping track of those and following along with Sam as he goes along his journey. So that's it for today. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.